Who do you suppose started it first? Crucify him. Crucify him. And then there was old Hank and Martha over there. Well, yeah, look, he's saying crucify him. There they are. I mean, wide and skinny and tall and young and old and short and wearing all our Jewish garb. And somebody gets the chant started. Crucify him. And then there, what, what's going on? Well, it's that man, this Jesus. Well, I understand that he's a wine bibber. Yeah, I heard that too. I heard that too. I heard all kinds of horrible things about him. Matter of fact, they say that he threatened to destroy our temple. Yeah, I heard that too. Did you hear it, Jim? Sure did. George, how about you? Joe, yeah, I heard it. Crucify him, crucify him. So the chant got louder and louder, and the whole mob got into the action. And pretty soon, the Savior of all of mankind, who not only was perfect in deed, but if you can handle this, was perfect in thought. Jesus Christ of Nazareth never sinned even in his mind. He was tempted, but temptation is not a sin. Only when temptation conceives, as James says, does it become lust, and lust then is a sin. Christ was tempted in every point like as we are, but he never sinned. He never sinned with his hand, his eye, his mind, his mouth. He never sinned in any manner, shape, or form. So he was utterly flawless. Yet because he was a normal human being in so many respects, accused of consorting with publicans and harlots, sinners were in his immediate circle, people who had terrible reputations. How could he ever consort with the likes of them? And because of all of that, they had him labeled as being a really evil man, an evil person, a drunk of illegitimate birth, questionable origins, and all these horrible things that they made up about him. And they killed the Prince of Life and the Son of God. If you would turn to Proverbs 6, 12 through 19, I'm going to use this as a text, and I, you might want to keep it open, but I have all of these seven labeled here because I want to come back to them one by one. Proverbs 6 and verse 12. A naughty person, a wicked man, walks with a froward mouth. He winks with his eyes. Now, you know what a wink always usually means. It means, hey, you know, we got the secret together, or hey, hi, kid, how you doing? Or uh, it's either flirt, or it's uh, we understand, don't we? It's like a private signal across a crowded room where two people are saying, yeah, let's get together later, whatever. But it's a, a kind of a deceitful, hypocritical gesture of the eye. He winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. You ever seen anyone stand around with body English and body language, as they say, and by their posture and by the way they pose themselves, by the way they carry themselves, by the way they walk, they communicate an attitude? He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. A lot of people do that. They'll glad hand you. They'll hit you on the back. They'll shake your hand. They'll be, have to hold on to your arm all the time they talk to you. They'll have to be doing something with their hands all the time. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things does the eternal hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord 
among brethren. Seven things God says he absolutely hates. A proud look. Have you ever encountered people with that? I've got a friend out there. I won't uh, go on and on about that. But I've seen some people, and I just witnessed in my lifetime that it seems like the less a person has to be proud of, the less ability, the less education, the less talent, oftentimes the more haughty and the more vain in order to offset a deep underlying inferiority complex. There is no one perhaps more proud than the lowliest commissioned officer in the military. You see someone even directing traffic out in the street or a policeman or something like that, and sometimes you find that that is true. And by the way, there is currently a terrible investigation underway in Los Angeles where a lot of the police are guilty of all kinds of crimes and chicanery, and which is terrible because then it paints with a broad brush the entire law enforcement agency, the great big multi-thousand member police force of Los Angeles. It gives all of the people who are criminals who resent law and authority a club to beat them over the head with. So it's one of the worst things that can happen when you have people that occupy a position of authority having that kind of expose made against them, which means that everybody then disrespects all the police. In Psalm 101, verses 4 and 5, it says, A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. God just turns his face away from an evil, wicked person. Whoso privily slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that has a high look and a proud heart, I will not abide, I will not suffer. God hates hauteur, superciliousness, and vanity, and people who live all their lives in a posture. In Psalm 119, verses 67 through 69, David wrote, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. We always quote that, or nearly always do on the Day of Atonement. But now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. In other words, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. The proud can forge lies, but David says, I'll just keep plodding along, doing what I need to do with my life, and I will continue to keep God's word. I will teach his statutes. In Proverbs 21, 23, and 24, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue, keepeth his soul from troubles. Proud and haughty scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. May as well label him a proud and haughty scorner. God talks about, see she from man whose breath is in him, and how his high looks and his proud demeanor will be brought down. Pride goeth before a fall, we know that. And what is the opposite of pride? It is humility. I met a man at the gate of the garden tomb in Jerusalem one time who was a Protestant evangelical minister. Uh, he knew me, but I didn't know him. And we were chatting amicably. He shook hands, and he told me, Yes, I majored in humility in college. Now, there's an exact opposite, isn't it? I mean, he's very proud and very vain, but I majored in humility, meaning... 
<laughs> but he was being completely supercilious, and he was joking about it. There wasn't a humble bone in his body, but he majored in humility, so he knew how to turn on the humility now and then if he had to, and that's the way a lot of us are. There is the you, and there is the I, and there is the projected you, or the projected image of what is I or me. There are millions upon millions of people out here who have totally different opinions of a person named Garner Ted Armstrong. Many of them hate me and wish I would drop dead on the spot. Uh, they are talking continually, as it says in Ezekiel 33, they talk about you in the way, and they say, come and let us hear what he has to say of the Lord. I'll tune in and see what he has to say. Other people just love me dearly. They write me and tell me so. I get letters and phone calls all the time. And there are two completely different opinions. And they're all absolutely convicted that they are right. And yet most of them, including even those who love me, do not really know me that well. Thanks be to God, there are a number who do love me and who know me very well. And that's very much appreciated, I'll guarantee you. But what I'm coming to is that we all are very complex. None of us are a simple, straightforward, easy-to-read personality. We're very complex. We can literally hold an opinion on both sides of the same issue. And we can found, be found sometimes talking to third parties about an issue, and depending upon our apprehension about their conviction and their opinion on this issue, we can say what party A wants to hear, and then we can say the exact opposite, which is what party B wants to hear, and all the time feel that we're not being duplicious or hypocritical, that we're actually being honest because we're letting them think that we're on their side even though we're talking, as they say, out of both sides of our mouth at the same time. That is human nature. There is the image we project of what other people think of us. And then there is that individual that our closest friends and loved ones know. My wife knows me and she will tell you better than I know myself. She may be right. Oftentimes, she can tell what I'm thinking before I've really formed the whole thought. Uh, and and uh, often, I think the, the longer you live together, the truer that is. I've often heard it said, and they said this to my dad and mom, you ever notice that the longer people live together, the more they not only begin to look like each other, but they begin to talk alike and think alike and so on. And Maybe God intends it that way, and I think that is very good. But then there is the me that I know, which is deep down inside. And then there is the me that God knows. And that's even deeper yet. Have you ever prayed, and I hope you have, and I hope if you haven't that you will, Oh God, let me not deceive mine own self. You've heard the old statement, To thine own self be true. That isn't common among us. A lot of us have a penchant for self-deception. We deceive ourselves about the way we really are. You know, it was old Rush Limbaugh that wrote that book about the way things really ought to be. Well, this is the way things really ought to be in the Word of God. And I've said time and again that it's very easy to think all these wonderful thoughts sitting in church, to be convicted of them, to preach them, to read them, to underline our Bible, to agree with them. But when trouble comes, when human emotions get involved, then is the time we need to apply and to live by these beautiful principles of God. Not a one of you in this room or not a one of you that will see this television program or this televised sermon 
want to be a person, God says, you know what? I hate that man. Or I hate that lady. No one wants that. No, we want God to say, I love that man. I love that lady. As Daniel was so greatly encouraged when he was on his hands and knees and trembling because he saw the archangel. And the man, the great archangel, came and actually touched him on the shoulder and gave him strength supernaturally, put him on his feet. And he said to Daniel, O man, greatly beloved, from the first that you set your heart, your prayer has been heard. And what a great encouraging thing from heaven itself to tell Daniel that he was a man greatly beloved of God. Do you want to avoid God actually feeling wrathful and hateful, hatred towards you and being the object of his wrath? Then look at every one of these things one by one and see that we are sure to avoid them. Two, second, a lying tongue. I know a lot about this. I've told lies in my lifetime, so has everybody in this room. Sometimes we lie to ourselves. My mother taught me a bitter lesson one time. I didn't really think that it was a lie, but I wanted some cookies that she had hidden up on an upper shelf. I got a chair as a little bitty boy, clambered up onto the kitchen counter, got up on the top shelf, and got some cookies. I ate one. And then I thought, I'd better get out of trouble, so I called into the other room where my mother couldn't see me, and I said, Mom, is it okay if I have a cookie? And she said, Well, yes, I'll come and get it. She saw me there having already the crumbs on my face and with a cookie in my hand. And she blistered my little rear end. And she said, I said, Well, why? You said that I could have a cookie. Yes, but you deceived me, and that's the same thing as a lie. You made me think that you hadn't yet had a cookie, and you'd already taken a cookie. So she said, don't ever deceive, because that's the same thing as a lie. That was back when parents believed in spanking their children, by the way. Uh, they don't do that so much anymore. Proverbs 10, verse 18. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. I've seen a lot of that. I'm sure you have as well. People that will actually put on a, an act or a face to each other, will see each other, how you doing? And then turn away with the friends, or you talk about an idiot. And uh, then share with someone close to them what they really think about this person. Uh, I was asked the other day, I can't repeat the word, do you know how to get an 80-year-old Baptist lady to say a filthy four-letter word? Having the faintest idea. Another 80-year-old Baptist lady says, bingo! So anyway, you might uh, uh, take that to heart. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander, is a fool. And I've seen a great deal of that. Proverbs 12 and verse 19 the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. You know, it's unbelievable. I remember a time when my dad had to actually get a group of people together in a little office room up here in Big Sandy. And they were at Swords Point, and I forget what it was all about. If memory serves, it was about who got to ladle the beans in the serving line at the Feast of Tabernacles. And one or two of the ladies got out of sorts with another one or two of the ladies. 
And by the time they talked it up and postured and got it all going, it was almost like a whole sack of wildcats, you know, in a burlap bag going at it. The only way to solve the problem, my father thought, this must have been about 1954, 55, was to get all the participants together in that little office and actually get them on their knees and pray about it audibly until every one of them were in tears and then have them stand on their feet and say, now, you know, well, I forget all the names, but I want you to hug Mrs. So-and-so and I'm sorry, you know, and embarrassed and all of that. And so they did. And my dad just got right in the middle of that sack of wildcats and solved the whole problem. Had to be real painful for him, real painful for them. It got started over almost nothing. You know, some of the biggest fights get started over almost nothing. Someone just says something. It's taken wrong. It's misunderstood. Maybe they meant it. Maybe they didn't. And then the argument gets started. You did too mean it. No, I didn't either mean it. Or at least I don't know. And uh, off we go. So that's human nature for you. Proverbs 12:19. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. And the next verse, verse 22, skip down a couple. Lying lips are an abomination to the eternal, but they that deal truly are his delight. We know that Jesus said of God the Father, Thy word is truth. And we know that the Word of God, the Bible, is absolutely true. It is not myth, it is not fables, not filled with lies and deceits and trickery. It's absolutely true. We can believe it and we can depend upon it. And that's why God cannot abide lies, as we'll come to the Scripture a little later on. Satan is the very first liar and the father of all who tell lies. The third thing that we saw, and hands that, that shed innocent blood. The very first murder was exactly that. It was homicide in the sense that it was in the home, but it was really what they call fratricide. And here was Cain, who out of jealousy murdered his own flesh and blood, his own brother, Abel. And from that time on, that has been a symbol of a murderer who would kill a completely innocent person. In Job 24 and 14, it says, The murderer, rising with the light, kills the poor and needy, and in the night is as a thief. I forget what, I think it's about 34,000 people are murdered in the United States every year. Now, that's an army of people. You know, if we had a church that size, we would be a very large and growing organization. And so many of those murders are among known kin, family members, associates, or friends. Increasingly, they are in schools where young people who are treated to all what they call entertainment today are completely twisted from their youth and end up being a mass murderer. John 8 and verse 44, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the posturing religious leaders, and he said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. This has nothing to do with genetics. It has everything to do with attitude and with their spiritual condition. It had to do with their motives and with their mind. Uh, this is taken by white supremacists and others to claim that they were actually the progeny of an illicit relationship between the devil and Mother Eve, which is a, a weird satanic doctrine and not true at all, trying to put down minorities in this and other countries. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning because he influenced Cain. 
and of course influenced, as we know, Judas Iscariot, and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. You know, I've met a few people in my lifetime, and I, I don't want to take slaps at the highest office in the United States, but there are people who apparently don't even know how to tell the truth. And I suppose that people can become so perverted and so twisted in their mind that it doesn't even matter if they're talking about a story or something that happened. They've got to embellish it. They've got to diminish it. They've got to change it a little bit. They can't just tell it plain vanilla. They've got to make tutti-frutti out of it. They cannot make it plain and simple and tell the truth. Have you ever known anybody in your circle of acquaintances that just doesn't even seem to know how to tell the truth? I, don't, I wonder sometimes about some politicians. But anyway, when he speaks a lie, speaking of Satan, he speaks of his own, for he is the liar and the father of it. In 1 John 3.15, we know the fact that Jesus Christ magnified the Ten Commandments of God and lifted them to a spiritual plane so that the spiritual intent of the law reaches into every conceivable thought and behavioral pattern of any human being. And he said, whosoever hateth his brother, his brother by definition is any other fellow human being, male or female really, not just talking about men, but any other human being, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You live in an age of hatred, of contempt. People in driving around in their automobiles are very aggressive. You remember only a very few years ago when a spate of murder got started on the Los Angeles freeways? We flew out there during that time. And I'll tell you, I was sitting very light driving along in my car. And I knew better than to make any eye contact with any other driver. Don't even look and catch his eye on you, lest he misinterpret it as some kind of a scornful look. So we were told at that time, somebody is driving with brilliant bright lights on, don't flick your lights and remind them that they've got bright lights on. They'll turn around, chase you down, and kill you, if they can. And we were also told that there are actually little cults, death cults, and gangs whose initiation rites consist of going out at night with their bright lights on, trying to find someone who will try to remind them they've got their bright lights on, that's hurting my eyes, turn around, chase them down, and shoot them if they can. I forget how many murders took place, but it was probably a dozen or more. And they found that probably one in four cars on the Los Angeles freeway had guns in them. And it was like the Wild West. And people were chasing one another down in cars and shooting out their windows. They don't even know these people. Have you ever driven with someone who is so uncontrollable in their anger that they will resort to everything from obscene gestures to fists shaking out the window to curses because someone did something wrong in traffic because they cut into them? A fellow that wrote for the Los Angeles Times talked of an experience when he was coming back in those impossible traffic jams that happen every single Sunday afternoon coming back from Palm Springs. And the guy behind him was in a little sports car, and he got impatient. Well, this man is, a, is sitting in a big sedan. The sports car bumped him a little bit because he hadn't moved up quick enough. He moved up, and he stopped. The little sports car bumped him again. So he thought, well, he bumped me, so I'll bump him back. So he put it in reverse, and he bumped him back. And this little M.G., and he, he thought, I can take care of him. I'm in a great big, you know, Buick here, and he's in a little M.G., he said, well, the man opened his door, and they were stuck bumper to bumper in traffic, and he said he started to get out. 
and he got out some more. And he kept getting out. And by the time he'd gotten all the way out, he was about 6'6". Six, six. And he walked up to my window and he said, you want to bump? So get out and let's bump. And he said, I just said, no, thanks a lot. I don't want to bump. And he told about his experience. That that was one time where he probably shouldn't have gotten angry, but just taken whatever punishment was there and tried to ignore it and gone on because he could have gotten himself hospitalized. But at least he had sense enough not to do that. I know that it's very easy for people to become so angry with other human beings that they will literally say, why don't you just drop dead? I mean, really, my life would be a whole lot easier and happier if you didn't exist anymore. So why don't you just drop dead? If you have those thoughts about anybody, be careful. You're right on the threshold of hating your brother and being a murderer. The fourth point was, an heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. People that conjure up evil scenarios. You know, you've already spent, oftentimes, if you think about it, all the money you'd win in the lottery. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, people have to have their fantasies. I'm not saying that's totally wrong, but don't overdo it. And they think, well, if I were to win that, here's what I would do. And then they think about travel, new homes, cars, yachts, airplanes, toys, whatever, glamour, uh, all kinds of wonderful things that they would do. But then there are other kinds of scenarios that people indulge themselves in. The Bible talks about those that lie awake and shutting their eyes bring evil to pass. And there are people that spend an awful lot of time just burning up inside, like a root of bitterness, like a cancerous growth of hatred towards someone else, wishing them evil, thinking of scenarios, I know something horrible that I hope will happen to them. Very, very evil in God's sight to do that. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Isaiah 32 and verse 6. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy, and to utter error against the eternal, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. And in verse 7, the instruments also of the churl are evil, he devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. Of course, that's talking about everyone from land barons to those who are in various fraternities. Again, you can't paint the legal fraternity with a broad brush. But there has been an awful lot of that all the way from Western history to those who landed at Ellis Island and met their very first con man by the time they got to the dock to those who were victimized by the railroads in a right-of-way in the opening up of the American West. And it's the same old story in society after society. I don't know how many times you've encountered something like the gouging when uh, suddenly a terrible tragedy has happened, such as a flood or a silver thaw, as they call it. I remember one farmer who was reported charging people $100 for pulling them out of a of a very sticky area where there was a steep hill and it was iced over and he had a tractor and so he would charge them $100 to get them back on the road. You ever heard of stories like that? Have you also ever heard of stories like people literally going to the site of a bus crash, a train wreck, or a plane crash and rifling through the pockets and the belongings of the victims? Oh yes, we've heard of that too. Human nature is capable of any kind of evil apparently. Christ said in Matthew 12 and verse 34, talking again about the Pharisees, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, 
speak good things. Are there men and women in the world who are evil? Just absolutely evil people, so twisted and perverted that there is none of the so-called milk of human kindness inside of them. There are none of the so-called humanitarian instincts. You know, people ask you questions that they think are unanswerable. And there was one gentleman that sent me a letter, and he didn't understand this about they, meaning these spots in your piece of charity mentioned in the book of Jude, like brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of those things which they understand not, having persons in admiration in order to gain advantage. Well, he applied as the brute beast being taken to be destroyed to the men. And therefore, that's predestination. And therefore, Judas couldn't help himself. And therefore, Pharaoh couldn't help himself. And whom he hardeneth, he will harden. And why do you find fault with God? He didn't understand that every human being has an option. Every human being has free moral agency. Every human being makes a choice. And that the brute beasts that are made to be taken and destroyed is referring to predators that are made to be tracked down and hunted when they will kill a human being, like a ravenous, uh, wild, maybe in this case, a rabid uh, dog or something like that. And he's merely applying the rapacious nature of a predator to a man. But the man has a choice, and a predator is acting on instinct. So he's merely drawing the analogy. And he's not saying that it's predestination, and some people are predetermined to be evil. God allows evil to exist, but it's not predetermined that every human being is going to be evil. But there are evil people, Christ said so. O generation of vipers, and we'll see an example of that in a minute. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If the eye is the window of the new creature in Christ, or the soul, as men say, then the mouth is certainly that which reveals what is going on in what we call the human heart the deepest motives of man. The next thing we saw was feet that be swift in running to mischief. I looked up Amos 8, 4, 5, and 6. Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone? And this they observed. It was a day where they actually had like a, an assembly, that we may sell corn. And the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small, making the bushel short, and the shekel great, the price raised up, and falsifying the balances by deceit. They used to say that many butchers had heavy thumbs. Do you remember the old gold days, the gold panning days? Have you read very much about that of the 49ers and uh, all of the placers uh, over around Placerville, California? Literally, if you've heard about a pinch of gold being the actual price for certain commodities, such as eggs or bread or whatever, and the people who got rich were often the storekeepers, not the miner themselves. This is a fact of old American history. Those owners and shopkeepers would deliberately seek out the people with the biggest thumbs and fingers they could find. Because when the miner came in with his little soft those skin pouch with grains, little tiny grains like grains of pepper or, or sugar of gold, then it was a pinch or two pinches. And the bigger the thumb and the finger, the more of that gold and it would mount up. 
I don't know if that was illegal, but it was just cutting a corner a little bit and going out of your way to do exactly what this scripture says. And this, of course, you run across many a time in dealing with those who sell and those who engage in commerce. It doesn't seem to make sense that if you were to go down here and buy a brand new Buick and drive it off the showroom floor, drive it around the block and come back to the very same dealer and try to sell it back to him that you would have lost one-third of its value. But those are the harsh facts of the way the automotive industry is run. That's just the way it is. It's already a used car. You drove it about, what, four blocks. Try to sell it back to him. Well, I'm sorry. It's only worth, you know, why now? Well, you paid X for it. He says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. That's the sweepings of it, that which is left over. I remember the scandals that came when they were discovering rat excretia in some of the California raisins that had actually been swept up from a floor, apparently, in some kind of a big barn where they were kept. And it was quite a scandal with that regard. Well, we've seen that a lot of times. You better be thankful for the... Uh, government agencies that inspect our beef and that inspect our food, and you remember that there are still criminals who have actually caused agonizing death running around loose, and it costs the packaging and bottling industries countless billions of dollars when some dirty, rotten, and to me this is a, uh, an example of someone who is evil to the core, that some rotten person put either arsenic or strychnine, whatever it was, inside a juice, a bottle of juice in a store in Seattle, Washington. Suddenly there were copycat people doing that all over the United States. And to this day now, when you go buy any kind of a bottle or a package, it has a completely different kind of a seal on it than it used to have. You don't buy it now where you just pop it loose and there it is. It's got to have a vacuum to make a pop. It's got to have a button. It's got to turn the wrong way. It's got to have a double seal. And it's cost the packaging and the bottling industry billions of dollars, I'm sure, over a period of time to try to protect you and me from people who are so evil that they would love to sit around in their home and read the headlines that several people died in agony as a result of a poison that they put in somebody's drink or food. The sixth is a false witness that speaketh lies. Exodus 20 and verse 16, the Ten Commandments of God. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Why does God put that on a par with murder and make it exactly the same with regard to its consequences? That it is a death sentence to bear false witness. Well, in history, if you study it, and I have studied a great deal of history, empires have fallen, nations have fallen, kings and queens have been assassinated, children have been smothered to death, people have been beheaded, witches in Salem, Massachusetts have been burnt alive at the stake, wars have been started in which countless hundreds of thousands and eventually millions have died because of false witnesses. And of course you know about the circumstances of Christ's death. In Matthew 26, 59 through 66, I want you to read that because that is the epitome. This is how it all happened. This is how it got started. And the people who were there seeking for the witnesses knew better before they ever launched on this search for the kinds of witnesses who would justify 
what they wanted to do illegally. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. Now, what does that mean? Is that a contradiction? No, it meant that they didn't find just the right story. It wasn't believable enough that the false witnesses were liars. They found them, sure, they were willing to lie, but they weren't believable enough. They wanted to find false witnesses who were believable. At last, at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, Christ made an enigmatic statement to them on one occasion when he said, Destroy this temple, meaning his body, which is exactly what the Gospels say, and in three days I will raise it again, talking about the resurrection. They misinterpreted that. The high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And that action, that profound silence, of course, just cut them to the heart. Because he knew they were deliberately lying and suborning witnesses. And they knew that he knew. And that galled them. They knew that Jesus knew exactly what they were up to. Jesus held his peace. And the high priest, who is posturing now, so he's a liar, isn't he? He's a hypocrite. Answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us, and I can just see all of that hauteur and vanity. He's posturing about his spiritual position. Tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, You have said it. And apparently, in our English language, it doesn't come across that way. Uh, other languages, of course, uh, sometimes uh, are almost the opposite. That is, putting the subject before the verb, or the verb before the subject, or the object before the subject, or whatever, and are backwards to the English. So he may have said, so you are Christ, the Son of God, are you? Or something like that. So Jesus said, well, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. So that was exactly what the high priest was waiting for. Now, it's very dramatic. You know, I couldn't begin to rend my clothes. I might be able to rend my skivvy shirt, but I guarantee you I could not tear the sleeve off of this jacket. I'm not strong enough. But these people had garments to where they could get a hold of them and just rip them. And that was the Jewish sign of extreme emotional duress and stress, was just to rend their garments. That's why God said, rend your hearts and not your garments. And it was a, a really a wonderful display that they loved to do in their hypocrisy, to stand there and just rip their expensive clothes to bits. Ah, why don't they just tear their hair out? It would be even more effective. But that would hurt. So they just ripped their clothes. And he rent his garments, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. So he's condemned out of his own mouth. What think ye? And they all answered, because that's what they were looking for, He is guilty of death. Crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. And so they crucified the very Savior of the world and we all know the story. We've read it time and time and time again. Well, not only have empires fallen, not only have wars been started, but wonderful, warm families have been divided as a result of lies and false witnesses. And churches 
have been split right down the middle. And people will never have anything to do with each other anymore because of false witnesses and because of deliberate lies. I'm not going to belabor the past. I'm just saying that these scriptures, when I read them and I focus in on that scripture over there in the book of Proverbs of the seven things that God says He hates. I want to go over that again with you right quickly. These six things does the eternal hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. A proud look. Solomon, in his wisdom, said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. There is a vanity of age. There is a vanity of youth. There is a vanity in people that have no reason to be vain. And as I said at the beginning, sometimes the less reason, the more the vanity. Sometimes it is possible to see people such as Christ, who was the most intelligent, the most knowledgeable, the most gifted, the most personable, the absolutely flawless and perfect in physical as well as mental health, and yet not a vain bone in his body, but completely and totally humble. Look at the Apostle Paul and all that he went through. He said on the one hand, in Romans the seventh chapter, in the last few verses, O wretched man that I am. On the other hand, he said, I suppose I was not a whit behind the chiefest apostles. Was that vanity? No. It was merely because there was racism getting started in the church, and he had to rebuke Peter before everybody in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby at the Feast of Tabernacles. How is it thou, being a Jew, live as do the Jews? When the Gentiles come in, you withdraw. Or the other way around, live as do the Gentiles. When the Jews show up, then you create a problem here. And he rebuked Peter before them all. But the Apostle Paul was a man who continually berated himself. And yet look at the gifts that he had. Look at the knowledge that he had. And look at the office that he occupied. He was the apostle of God during that age to all of the Gentile races and had a ministry that spanned all the way from the British Isles in Spain to Jerusalem itself and all of the Aegean and all of Greece and of Rome and all of those nations around the Mediterranean where Peter apparently was over in Babylon. And you cannot find a place where the Apostle Paul was vain. Yet you can find Paul writing to the Corinthians and saying, What will you? Shall I come in love or with a rod? Shall I come as a humble person? Or shall I come with the power and the authority that God gives me to take care of the problems that you people are creating there? A wonderful example of a man who had been all the way up in the pride and the hauteur and the vanity of uh, being a Pharisee of the Pharisees and having letters like letters of Mark, like a privateer, but these were letters that would allow him to go and to arrest, like warrants for people's arrest, and to take them and actually put them to death and torture them, and then became completely converted and became one of the most humble men that you could ever know. A proud look. God hates hauteur and superciliousness and vanity. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood and heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and finally, he that soweth discord among brethren. Sometimes the only time that beloved family members meet is at the, is, is at the funeral beer of a loved one. I've seen that happen. It's happened in my life. Sometimes people who should be brothers and who should understand one another are forced to go to such an event. 
You cannot imagine how painful it was for me to attend my father's funeral. How incredibly painful it was. I couldn't bow my head when that man, whom I will not name, spoke his prayer. That's why I watched him as he prayed like this with his eyes wide open because I was as close to him as I am to my son Mark, or closer, and there wasn't any way with Channel 7, Channel 11, and Channel 13, and their cameras going, and all the dignitaries there, including the mayor and the chief of police of Los Angeles, and of Pasadena, and with all those evangelists, and with my father's dead body in that beer, that that man was going to allow me to walk up and grab that microphone and say, I will be heard. And so he prayed with his eyes wide open. I knew exactly what was going on. And to see those men who used to work for me, men who I had appointed to their jobs, men whom I had made department heads, like over the French department or the Spanish department, or I chose my own head of the theology department of Ambassador College, struggling under the weight of that huge big coffin, tripping on one of the slats and causing it almost to go down into the, into the grave and to cause the thing to tilt, which I thought they're going to do it. They're going to drop my father on the way there. You talk about painful. And then I go out and have to perform my own sister Beverly's funeral. And here are members of her family, whom I love dearly but almost never see. But they're sitting in the very front row were those same gentlemen. And because Beverly was my father's uh, hostess who went with him on his arm and dozens of banquets and met emperors and kings and, you know, prime ministers and presidents and was all kinds of, of dinners and so on from China to Africa to all over the, the world. They showed up at the funeral and I had been asked by my sister before she died to perform that ceremony. That was painful to sit there with these faces there that I knew very well and had known for many, many years and to preach out of God's Word what I assumed they too believed. I found later to my chagrin some of them apparently don't believe it anymore. I thought at the time that they believed 1 Corinthians 15, the Sabbath and God's law. I found out later that maybe one of them didn't and the rest of them did, but the one who didn't was the one who was in power and authority and so he got it all changed. It's very, very sad when discord is sown among brothers, brothers and sisters, by third parties, merely by saying some things out of school, so to speak. It can happen. Psalm 50, verse 17 through 23. Seeing thou hatest instruction, and cast my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then you consented with him, and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things have you done, and I kept silence, God speaking. Though you thought that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifies me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. You know, we all understand that we're not to gossip, but we all do it sooner or later. We talk about third parties. 
I can confess to that. I've heard things that people have told me and passed them on and thought, why did I do that later on? And you shouldn't indulge in it. If you'll turn to the book of James, you know exactly where I'm going before I get there. And there's a reason why God's Word says so much about this. Many scriptures that I've quoted to you today, and there were many, many more I could have. Just take a long time. There are so many in the Psalms and Proverbs, you wouldn't believe it. Just many, many scriptures about our mouths and our talk and how we conduct ourselves one to another. It says in the third chapter of the book of James, My brethren, and the inference here is that become not many of you teachers, elders, preachers, ministers. Become not many of you masters, and the word master is a teacher or an elder in the church, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Actually, it should read judgment, as the margin says. The sterner or the stricter judgment. For in many things we all offend. True. Let's admit it here together. I do, you do. In many things, in many ways. There are sermons that I don't dare preach. This may be one of them. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to tread on any toes that don't need treading upon. If there are toes that need to be treaded upon, so let the Word of God tread upon them. Not me personally, but the Word of God. Because that's what we need. And if a man receiveth not correction, then he is a, you fill in the word, and not a son. Correct me, O eternal, and it shall be a kindness, said David. And, of course, Jeremiah prayed the same kind of a prayer. Correct me, though not in thine anger, lest you bring me to nothing. For in many things we offend all. We all offend. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. And I'm not perfect. And none of us in this room are. None of us are perfect. We make mistakes. I don't care if we're in the ministry or the lay membership. We're not perfect. We're not there yet. We're striving toward it. We try. I'm reminding myself here as well. We try, but we don't always do it perfectly. Able to bridle the whole body. Behold, look, we put bits in horses' mouths that they will obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm. I was captain's talker on a 27,000-ton, 888-foot-long aircraft carrier with over 100 aircraft and 3,000 men. And up there at the captain's bridge, where I was with my talking, my sound-powered telephone, where I could communicate from the captain to the gunnery officer, was the wheel. It was this big around. It was about two and a half feet of solid brass with a rubber kind of a grip around it, and that turned the entire aircraft carrier. You just turn it a little bit, and that ship would heel over and turn. And it is quite a lesson, having stood there and realized that that little wheel, of course it was all hydraulically activated, a gigantic rudder, but that with that little helm, wheresoever the captain wanted that ship to go, it went. Now the analogy he is drawing is, even so the tongue is a little member, and with it we taste our food, and we lick our teeth and our gums and our, our lips and so on. And boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Hitler east Deutschland, Deutschland east Hitler. And the Jews are evil, and on and on. And Hitler with his speeches and inflammatory slander and his constant racism caused an entire nation to rally behind him to worship him 
and he is like the Antiochus Epiphanes of old and like the precursor of the beast who is to come, which will be state worship. It's going to happen again. And with his mouth, with just I, I remember that sermon, just one man that I gave you, of how much evil one human being, like a Saddam Hussein or an Adolf Hitler or a Pol Pot, can accomplish if other people will follow him in these evil programs. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body. You know, that's true if you stop to think about it. If you've ever had one of these freewheeling evil gossip sessions where you sat around over dinner and a few drinks and just ripped somebody to bits, when you go out, it's almost like you've been grubbing around in the out of doors and you're all sticky and sweaty and you need to shower physically. You feel bad mentally and emotionally after you've indulged yourself in that. You just think, yeah, I think I'll go wash out my mouth. You know, you've all, you all know exactly what soap tastes like, don't you? I do. My mom washed my mouth out with it. If you don't know what it's like, it's because your mother never washed your mouth out with soap. You don't normally get soap in your mouth when you shower or bathe, but if your mother's like my mother, you say a word she didn't approve of, she'd got a bar of soap, and this was Fels Naphtha, and it really tastes bad. And wash it out of there to give you the lesson that it's a dirty thing to say, and your mouth shouldn't say these dirty things. It defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. What a scripture! The course of nature. Things run their course. You start it going, and it just is like a snowball, and there's no stopping it. It's like an avalanche. There's no stopping it. It's like the cigarette butt thrown out on a windy day in a dry, grassy field in California with a degree, 100 degrees and dry humidity. And all of a sudden, you've got, you know, 60, 80,000 acres and a whole bunch of structures, which happened just the other day, burning and people losing their entire livelihood as a result of somebody flipping a cigarette out of a car window. It's happened time and time again. The course of nature and is set on fire of Gehenna. That's what is going to happen. Now, if we know that the actual struggle to achieve salvation is dependent upon us guarding the door of our minds, which is our mouth, and controlling our mouths and making sure that we never tell a lie, that we never repeat gossip, that we never slander or speak evil of anyone, is that so hard to do after all when you stop to think about it? Every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and things in the air is tame that has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father. He's writing to church brethren here. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father. And therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct, as it should read his works, with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, sometimes our innermost motives, as I said at the beginning, are almost impossible even for us to admit to ourselves. Almost impossible. That's where prayer comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. We can't clearly see those things until God shows us 
when we're on our knees in heartbroken repentance, asking God to look down deep inside our excuses, inside our tendency toward self-deception, and to know us thoroughly. As David prayed, search me, O Eternal, and try me, and see if there be any evil thing in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie against the truth. So, if there are others who hate us, by all means let us love them. What is the absolute foundational big building block of Christianity? Love your enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive who? The people we just read about. They suborned witnesses. They ripped their clothes in haughty religious posturing. What need do we have of further witnesses? If you heard him condemn himself out of his own mouth, away with him, let's kill him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I have gotten almost blind, raging furious in my lifetime over people who have told outrageous lies and been caught in them. But I can't allow that motive or that motion, that emotion to boil and steep and seethe in there. I've got to conquer it. I've got to overcome it. I've got to put it down. I've got to ask God's Holy Spirit to just wash it out of my mind just like a clear-running stream of sky-blue water. And it can't be there anymore. Sure, you feel those things. We all do. But we've got to get rid of them. God said, don't let it have. Uh, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. But where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Jealousy, envying, envying someone else, their money or their personality or their office or position or function or whatever, their mate, their car, their, their home, uh, envying the fact that they're friends with someone that you'd like to be friends with, whatever. Envy can take every kind of a twist and a turn. Where envying and strife is, there's confusion. And the margin says that that is the same thing as brawlings and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. What a beautiful scripture. What are the attributes of the Holy Spirit of God? You all have them absolutely memorized. Love. So the next time there's any situation at all where stories, tales, gossip, uh, accounts of goings-on have been brought to your ear, ask yourself, where is the love in this? The second attribute is joy. Does it make you joyful to hear it? And does it make you joyful to tell it? Is it going to create joy after it is heard or after it is told? The third is peace. Where is the peace, the tranquility in this? Has it given you a peaceful, placid mind to listen to it? And will you be at peace as you convey it on and tell it to someone else? Love, joy, peace. And remember the scripture, mercy, meekness, goodness, gentleness, faith, against which there is no law. I drew the analogy that there are many, many people, and I'm not picking on women. Most of them have seemed to be women. I'm sure there are a lot of men that do it too. And they will not run the green light in in Tyler. There can be a great big green light. But if there is not also a green arrow, 
they will sit there in that intersection until that light turns red or the green arrow comes on. They will not run that green light. Even when no traffic is coming, I'm the car always immediately behind this person who is sitting there with a big green light, no traffic coming. I have no room to maneuver. I want to turn left in the worst way. Perfectly okay to turn left. It's a green light. There's no law against turning left when you have a green light. You merely allow the other person the right of way. You don't want to get broadsided, so you make sure there's no traffic coming. Then you can go. But they won't go. And I tell my wife, look, they're not going to run that green light. She's tired of hearing it. She knows what I'm going to say. Uh Uh-oh, he's going to say they're not going to run the green light. It's on again. And I've drawn that analogy when I read this scripture. Against such, there is no law. There is no law against mercy, meekness, goodness, gentleness, faith. So let's go ahead and just run up and grab a hold of those attributes. There's no law against that. We can have meekness anytime. We can have goodness anytime. We can shovel out mercy anytime. We can have faith that everything's going to work out anytime. There's no law against it. Let's just go ahead and run it. Run through that green light. It says, seize those things. Pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. Oh, I love that one. Right out of 1 Corinthians 13, too, isn't it? And this is James, not Paul. But James certainly knew Paul and vice versa. Because he said when that certain that group had come from James, you know, in the second chapter of the book of Galatians. I don't know how often he had met him or how many times he'd sat down and talked to the brother of the Lord, but he had. And in 1 Corinthians 13, believing the best and enduring all things and hoping for the best and being easy to be entreated and not easily provoked. I know there are people that talk about redheads have a temper. And like some people will use the analogy, well, he whipped up on him like a redheaded stepchild. Because I guess people are supposed to be sulfuric and quick to anger if they had had red hair. And Mr. and Mrs. Vance can tell you about that. Some of our people here have red hair. As to whether they have a little more of a problem with that, I doubt it. Certainly, I've never seen it. But anyway, they say that. Well, people will explain the way they are oftentimes. They'll say, well, I tend to have a quick temper, but I get over it real quickly. And someone else will say, well, I don't. I tend to burn real slow, but boy, when I get angry, look out. You know, kind of like I'll probably tear the door off the car and throw the refrigerator through the window because by the time I get angry, man, I'm really a terror then. You know, people tell about the way they are. Easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality, oh, even-handed, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter where. There are no side doors, there are no back doors, there's no special access somewhere so that you get immunity already before you pull this big monstrous thing that's going to happen, but no partiality. And without hypocrisy. You know, a little child of one year toddling around is incapable of hypocrisy. They don't even have sense enough yet to control the bodily functions. That's honest. <laughs> There's no hypocrisy in that. I mean, they, you know, they're hungry. They look at you and they're hungry. And every emotion is an innocent emotion. It may not all be perfectly right in God's sight, because even at one year, we can, we can be uh, little monsters sometimes and cause our mothers and fathers some problems because we're human nature is inside of us but totally honest and without hypocrisy, just straightforward. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. 
as Christ said, Blessed are the peacemakers. I want to conclude this by going to Matthew 12, 36 and 37. This is what Christ is saying to us. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Now, there is another caution here. I think there is another scripture or two that we could read. We could allow a little bit of Christ's own interpretation to obtain here. Every idle word that men shall speak for which they do not repent. For which they do not repent. It doesn't mean if you speak a tattletale, a gossip, idle word, but then you go on and you're living your life in repentance and you try to ask God to forgive you for that, that that word is still going to be repeated back to you and it's not uh, exempted. It's not wiped off the slate. If you repent of it, you've repented of it. But it means those that have not repented of the idle words that they have spoken shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Out of the heart the mouth speaketh. And God is far more concerned about what is going on in our inward, deepest personal motives in our hearts than He is about the posturing on the outside. Now, I could belabor this over and over and over again. I just know that in my experience that it is the most difficult thing to do, and I agree with James 100%. It just seems to be that when human emotions get involved, that all of these wonderful scriptures we have read today, and they are wonderful, are just out the window, just tossed to the wind, and they mean nothing anymore. Oh, but they do. And if we could just come to the point to where we think of these scriptures before the problem grows and when the emotions first begin to get involved and then just put a lid on it and think of these beautiful attributes of God's Holy Spirit that we read about, we're going to solve a multitude of problems. Do you realize that without even trying, even in this fledgling beginning of the Intercontinental Church of God, here and there, here in this congregation, in other congregations, even between and among ministers, between and among brethren, between and among hosts, between hosts and the people who come to their homes and watch a television program, that people could ignore some of these scriptures that we're talking about and cause problems which could be like a snowball that would just run downhill. Now, as David prayed, why do the heathen rejoice? There's another aspect of this too, isn't there? Why should you ever give an enemy a big stick and say, here, hit me with it? Why hand an enemy a big club to beat you over the head with? Why do the heathen rage? Why should the heathen say, where is their God? What would be some of the best news you can imagine that dissenters, detractors, and competitors, they might feel that they are competitors. I don't. I just want to do the work of God as best we possibly can. What would be the most delightful news they could ever hear? That there had been a big rift. That people had dropped out. That people had just gone back. People had just fallen away. That would be the most delightful thing that enemies could ever hear. Well, I heard something, I saw something on the Internet, and I'm beginning to wonder... As I look at all the moves, I told you about this great, huge ecumenical conference that's going to take place. 
The United Nations is getting ready to have sometime, I think, in the late summer or the early fall next year, a great big conflab on one world government. They're getting together all the church leaders, including the Pope and the Grand Mufti and the leaders of the Anglican Church and all the rest of them. The very next day or two comes an announcement on the Internet that the papacy has begun to mend its fences with the Lutheran Church. And apparently the Lutherans and the Catholics have resolved the major difficulty that caused the breakaway by Martin Luther from the Catholic Church in the first place. Now, at the very same time, the Church of God, as I knew it in the 1950s, 60s, and through all of the 70s, clear through 1978, is fragmented into more than 120 little splinters. You figure it out. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first. A falling away first. I've always said you can't fall if you're not walking. If you're just crawling on your belly, you don't fall. So a falling away, I haven't taken to mean the Lutherans returning to the Catholics or the Baptists and Methodists recognizing the Pope. But when you have all of this happening on both sides of this issue, you have the fragmentation of what we called the parent church, which bears no resemblance to the parent church anymore, and all of this more than 120 groups going their own way, running off in all these different directions at the very same time where the pagan churches and the churches of this world are moving toward getting together. I'm just telling you that maybe I'm not very wise about interpreting prophecy, but that has some very deep significance to me about the times in which we live. So as a final analogy, brethren, we're just like a woodcutter. We've got a whole forest out there, and we've got a sharp, double-bitted axe, and we need to start hauling lumber. And there is no way we can do it if all we are doing is standing around and banging ourselves on our own shins and our own toes with that axe. The only way we can do the work is if we are healthy, we're all marching along together in lockstep, arm in arm, and doing the work of God together and getting rid of every one of the little minor problems that beleaguer or beset us from time to time and just go on and do the work of God. I don't know how much time we have left, but I do know that the year 2000, from which we now are 69 days away, 69 days from the moment I am speaking to you, Y2K is going to hit, and we will then see in the ensuing weeks and months what will be the final outflow, what will be the result of Y2K. But it's significant to me that the new euro in coinage is going to be distributed. The United Nations is getting together, as is Europe, and they're having a lot of real wrangles and talk about what shall be the common language because they got more than 16 languages in these meetings that they're having in Brussels and Finland and elsewhere, and there's a lot of upset about it. The movement in Europe is toward coalescing, toward unifying, toward coming together. The mood in the churches with the Catholic Church and all the others is coming together, unifying, coalescing. And the mood in the church of God is splitting, dividing, and going their own way. You figure out the prophecies. I think I know where we are and where we're going.